evening, all you movers and shakers and indie art makers. This is J. Michaels in the Passion Pit. This Halloween so far, you've heard from a macabre new stage play, a weird web TV series, and now a pair of fascinating fear filmmakers on this special one hour in the Passion Pit. Marcus Labine and Jeremiah Kipp are two industrious and imaginative specialists in the horror realm who share with us news of their films and their philosophies on the fright genre. This is all part of In the Dark, the special section of my podcast that examines the macabre movers and shakers of indie film and stage. We will hear from one of those filmmakers, Marcus Slabine, right after this. You'd like to attend more live performances, but who knows which shows are worth the time, money, and hassle. At Oplod, you'll find unbiased two or three minute video reviews that make the decision easy. Use offer code J, that's J-A-Y, by December 31st, 2019, for six months free unlimited access, a $59 value. Sign up now at Oplod.com. That's O-P-P-L-A-U-D.com. Hello, is this Marcus Slabine? Yes, it is. This is, this is Jay Michaels. If I'm on the line, you're on the air. Awesome. Oh. Well, thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Are you kidding? I'm a devotee of, of macabre cinema, and, and you make such things. Yes, very much so. <laughs> so so um, this is a new segment on my podcast where we speak to independent filmmakers and, and independent filmmakers who make... Uh, uh, macabre and horror-related films. Uh, tell our listeners all about your, your career in such, a, in, in such a dark art. Oh, sweet. Um, so I've, I've always kind of had a passion for horror. Um, growing up, I used to watch um, um, all, like, a lot of like, creepy movies and stuff like that, but I was never into it until I was 13 when I saw Army of Darkness in the theater. <laughs> and... Yeah, that's it's the Evil Dead series that, that got me into horror, and I just, oh, the instant I saw Evil Dead 2, I knew that I had a new love and a passion, that I had to find some way to create that, so... Um, Evil Dead uh, 2 is absolutely brilliant. Evil Dead 2 was great, I enjoyed it, but Evil Dead 2, yeah, I agree with you, I was, I, I was so hooked on the whole series at that point. Oh, yeah, and like, the thing about Evil Dead 2 is that, and I've, and I've tested this out, it's the ultimate party movie. It's the movie where you can put it on <laughs> at a party, right. and no matter what scene it's on, people just stop, and they're like, whoa, and then they have to sit down and watch. Completely, um, completely. So then I ended up starting up a horror movie review website called Kick-Ass Horror Reviews, which I did for about eight to ten years, and um, that's kind of where the obsession kicked in, because then I was able to interview celebrities and um, review any movie I wanted, and I just fell even deeper down the rabbit hole of that. And then I started making horror films. Um, once I went to school, I went to New York Film Academy for a year, graduated, and I, then I hit the ground running and made 18 shorts, just wrapped a feature, um, and working on, working on the feature version of my latest short, which is a horror film that is in festivals right now, and we're looking to turn it into a feature called The Last Call. That is terrific. That is terrific. How has the audience been uh, in terms of your films? 18. Wow. How, how, uh, 
uh, sometimes I'll speak to someone and I'll say, oh, yeah, well, yeah, I made a horror movie because I wanted audience. And I'm like, no, not a horror movie. 18. Oh, gorgeous. How, how's the audience reaction? For some of them, um, so for my film, The Break-In, which, which we did, a, uh, which was kind of like my first short film that I did right out of uh, school, um, the audience was, they, they, people really dug it. They really enjoyed it. Um, but it's also a very slow burn. And what I've noticed is, is that there's a very, very gory scene that involves a corkscrew and someone being <laughs> really stabbed to death with it. And whenever we had it online, we started noticing that people found that to be too gory. <laughs> too gory, really? Yeah, because they, uh, my wife, who um, does my special effects, and she also produces almost everything I do, um, is um, she did an insane job. And we have this extreme close-up of, like, the corkscrew coming out of the throat and, like, the person just blood coming out of the hole and all this. And people, it, it hit them in the right way. Now we do. Uh, there's also a fingernail getting ripped off sequence in it. How long ago was that movie? How long uh, ago did you do that? I'm gonna say, whew, I'm gonna say like 2012, 2013, maybe. That just shocks me because we have we have movies like Hostel and and Teresa where where it's it's almost too real to be a movie and 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 your corkscrew uh, effect really got so visceral to people. Wow! Now I have to go yeah. online and see it. Oh, yeah, I can totally send it to you. Oh, please, please, please. Oh, that's terrific. Um, uh, are, you a gore, are you a gore lover when you make your, your horror films? Are you, uh, do you focus, I won't say focus because that's a terrible word to put it that way, but are you a gore lover or do you go for gothic? What's, what's your, your style of horror? Um, so I love me some gore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge gore fanatic. I mean, once again, Evil Dead 2 is, you know, um, Sam Raimi set the bar and then even with the TV show, they set the bar with gore. But yeah. I think it, it depends upon the project. So, um, we did, um, so Breaking's pretty gory. And then my film Last Call was supposed to be a lot gorier, but then as we started shooting it, it became less of like a gory horror film and more of like a taut thriller. Um, so there is gore in it, but there, but a lot of like the really massive gory parts that we had ended up not making it just because it, it distracted from the performances from everybody in it. And, um, so yeah, it really does depend upon the project. Um, the latest film I just did, we did, um, it's called Janice and the Golden Fleece and it's, uh, we had a... We did it originally as a short for a film festival called Sparrow Film Project, and we won audience choice with that film. And it's that's um, great. Uh, thank you. Um, and we did. Uh, um, people really dug it. They really loved it. Over the years, people really wanted it. So we ended up writing uh, four more episodes. We just shot the second one. We built a full functional cave in our backyard. Um, <laughs> 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 yeah, it was like a 20-foot cave that just um, encompassed the back, the entire backyard. Our landlord was so sweet about it. She just wanted a little hatch that she could crawl through to get to her garden, which we enabled, which we were able to do. And uh, But, yeah, we had a giant, creepy cave that we were shooting in. But that one went from being gory, because a lot of them, it's very slapstick gory, like Mel Brooks meets uh, Monty Python type of humor. That's great. 
So we threw this the episode two is the gross out one, you know, it's like the trauma one. There's puke, there's lots of nastiness in it, there's just it's just it's gooey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm from the days of George Romero and, and Tom Savini. So yeah, you you, you have a you you are preaching to the converted in terms of, of gore. I I I think it's it's terrific. Oh, I um, love George Romero, and actually, Terry Alexander and Laurie Cordell are both in Last Call, who are, who are oh, both from right. Day of the Dead, which is right. one of my personal favorite movies. Now, now what makes you, um, uh, uh, now you, you said one movie was, was uh, it was going to be much more gory, and it wasn't. The storyline is, is what, what you essentially follow then. You're, you're, you're definitely the, the storyline kind of person. So, so a film could change completely depending on the tenor of, of of the story and the performance. Totally, 100%. Oh, and that's like, great. For me, it was also, it's also about the characters. You know, At the core of that film, it was really about these five people stuck in this radio station when this killer starts taking people out. But for me, I'm, I'm always a fan of, I want to fall in love with the characters right before you kill them all off. Because if I love them and I care about them, then when they start dying off, I'm actually going to care. You know, um, and with that, we started noticing that, like, the characters became very likable. Every character, they were either funny, they were sarcastic, they're just um, charismatic. And because of that, doing an excruciatingly brutal, gory death to them was, like, too much. I mean, granted, in the feature version of it, we do up it all up and um, put in some more of that extra bits of gore. But, um is one character was supposed to pull an arrow through their throat and it's supposed to get caught and we're supposed to be going to do full close-ups and all this. But then we realized, we're like, that's too brutal a death for this character. Um, so we just cut, so we cut that down before we even shot it. Good for um, you. You're, you're, you're a trendsetter because that's, that's the whole premise right now with, with Walking Dead. People are, are uh, from, from the death of Glenn, Everyone I've spoken to who, who's a devotee of Walking Dead, they're all like, oh, it's terrible. Why do these people have to die? It's, it's, it's great that you, you give us these people that we like, and so we actually mourn them when, when, yeah. when they're hacked to bits. Exactly, and I'm a huge Walking Dead fan. I love Walking Dead, and I personally think that their last season, the season nine, was one of the best seasons of the entire show. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, they, they went in a completely different direction, which was wonderful. Yeah, and the whisperers. I won't say anything more. <laughs> um, but oh my god, the, the storylines—the way that they've made it—they've made it now more of a personal story because there's less characters. You know, Walking Dead at one point was having too many characters that were just thrown in the background, and we didn't get anything out of them. Now, now that it's slimmed down a little bit. Um, now it's like every character has their own personal story again. And now it's like, oh, this is why we fell in love with them. And then when things start happening, you're like, oh, God, no, 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 no. That's you know? great, yeah. But, um, I, I, that, that's, an old, that's an old movie technique. Okay, let's have four or five people that we don't even know their real names in, in the film or whatever. And so we don't care. So when they're hacked to bits, we don't care. And then we, yeah. we just worry about everyone else. So it's, it's, it's interesting that, that you, you notice that in Walking Dead, that they've They've cut out the uh, uh, the killing before the credits characters. Exactly. Well, I mean, go back, go back to the original Night Night of the Living Dead. You know, Romero. Once again, he 
magically brought a very small story that was, you know, that involved zombies. You know what I mean? That mm-hmm. About like a, gr- a small group of characters that are stuck in a house that don't know each other. That you know, all come from different walks of life and are forced to interact. Right. And all honestly, to me, Night Night of the Dead is the tentpole, like original indie film. But it's one of the films that when you watch today and you really sit down really watch you just see this it's a perfect movie you know yeah. it, it's a perfect movie between the characters between the social commentary between everything it's a it's a zombie film that's not about the zombies it's more about the characters and that's and Romero used to be able to do that fantastically like he's just I love George Romero I, I saw an interview with him at one point and he didn't even realize people were telling him these things about having an African-American be the, the hero and the irony of the ending and all of this. And he just went, oh, oh okay, it's, it's, it was a horror movie, okay. And, and so it was great. Now, now do you, you, you write your pieces as well? Yes, yes. Um, I, I've, I've directed other people's stuff. Um, but primarily, I, most of the horror films that I've done, I, I've directed and written myself. So, so now I talk to you as a screenwriter and a playwright because my, my careers are in the theater as well. So I'll, I'll look at you as the playwright. What is your mission when you write a piece? Do you look at the world in terms of social commentary? Do you, what, when you sit down at, at the computer and say, okay, I'm writing a movie, what's the mission? What, what goes through your head? So for me, what goes through my head a lot of times is um, I, get, I get like ideas and I'll be like, okay, I have – this scene, and I have this scene, and I have this scene, and then you know, sometimes I'll have the ending, and I'll start fleshing out the characters in my mind. But, like, I always want to tell a story. I always want to tell, have multiple characters. I always want to have characters that people can go and have fun with. But when certain films, if I decide to put social commentary in them, I want it to be very, very, a lot more Romero-esque. Just, you know, as opposed to, like, certain films that, like, shout the commentary at you. I like to... Um, like one of the themes of um, Last Call is is everyone's having a really, really bad day. And it's a simple thing, but it's basically the worst day of everybody's life. And that energy can change how everybody reacts. You know, you've gone into work on days where, you know, everyone's mad, everyone's upset, and that energy just kind of uh, permeates in the room. And there's one person in the room who will try to cheer everybody up, and that's kind of Harry. You know, he's it's his last day. Meanwhile, everyone's losing their minds. Yet he's totally, you know, being like, "Okay, well, I'm still gonna be happy. I'm still gonna, you know, joke around with you guys. Just relax. It's gonna be good." Um, you know, and I try. I also try to make it so that I, it should be a movie that I would want to see. I love watching movies, and I wanna, I wanna make something that, like, if 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 I didn't make it, I'd still want to watch it. That type of thing. You That's know? great. So so it's it's not like you sit down and say, okay, I need to talk about the government. I need to talk about immigration. I need to talk about drugs. No, you sit down, you create a movie, and and it's somehow it's organic. You so the 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 commentary uh, uh, somewhat somewhat permeates as opposed to you sitting there and saying, okay, I need to make a parable about what's going on in the world. Correct. Very you know, cool. And social commentary does fit into the world. I have one that um, that I wrote. Um, I can't talk too much about it, but um, 
just so happened that it's a, that it ended up being able to have that social commentary about, po- about political standpoints that are going on today, and um, and it just filtered into the story. But it wasn't my goal to set out to be like, I got to talk about this or this, because you know that way now it's organically in the story with like little little things that when people have read it, we did a, a table read a while back, and like people were picking up on the little nods and like, and I was like, yeah, okay, that works. Have you ever have you ever gone in the other direction? Have you ever said this is a very important message? People need to know what's going on, and the best way to do it is with a horror movie. And and did it that way. Or, or, or is it always uh, the the monster first and the and the message later? I tend to, you know, it, every, for me, every film I write has been different. Um, hmm. um, the one I was just talking about, they, that one, that one had a message that um, the producers that were all the, um, on it, we were all discussing, and we wanted to put certain things into it, um, and. You know, I've never actually said I'm like, I've got to talk. Well, I'm okay, actually wrong. I did with the break-in. Um, it's a four-part series. We um, basically, and it's a very simplistic um, thing I wanted to set out. The basic way I came up with it was I was driving down a road one day, and someone came around the corner, and they blinded me with their high beams. Um, and I swerved off the road, and I was fine. But, you know, I, being from Boston, I was just like, okay, you know, I was young, I was stupid. Um, I was like 19, 20, and I like slammed on my gas, spun around, started chasing the guy, you know, trying to think I was going to chase the guy down. And as I'm going, my mind starts going on. It's like, you know, what if this guy is a serial killer? What if he's got a dead body in his trunk? What if, you know, he's just murdering somebody and then he's my car starts slowing down, and I was like, you know what? Uh, I think I'm going to go home. I think I'm just going to drive up. And then that became the second part of the break-in series. That's terrific. It's so funny because as you're chasing this guy, he's probably looking in his rearview mirror going, oh, my God, there's a serial killer with a body in his trunk, and now he's coming to get me. <laughs> exactly. Now, you lucked out with special effects. You say your wife is, is a special effects artist. Yes, yes, she is. And she's an amazing special effects artist, but she's also like a jack-of-all-trades. She does everything. She produces. She acts. Um, she has a role. She she actually plays Janeth in Janeth from the Golden Police. Hmm. Um, and she's worked on so many amazing shows and TV and everything. It's, you know, yeah, it, to say lucked out is... Uh, is is an understatement. <laughs> was, was she was she a horror lover before you, or did you or did you turn oh, her yeah. to the dark side? Oh, so she was already there. Very good. Yeah, actually, the the movie that that we kind of uh, reconnected on. Um, I used to do midnight screenings at uh, Sunshine Theater, that is now closed down, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were screening the original nineteen um, eighties Fright Night. Um, and I invited her, and we ended up. Uh, I invited a bunch of people, and. After the movie, uh, we started talking, and we've been together ever since. Um, that is true. That's one of her favorite movies. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, there's, so there's there's something about that movie, Fright Night, with um, you know Roddy McDowell and uh, Chris Sarandon, and um, oh, I just love that movie. It it harkened back to an uh, to another era. It was it was almost like the. It, 
it, it had a little universal horror movie in it with its humor. It had a little Hammer films in it, the way the the, yeah. the vampires were depicted. It, it was a, in a time of, of the slasher films because the eighties, the eighties, a, a, a corkscrew. Oh, oh, that's too simple. Uh, and <laughs> in a time when everyone's being cut up to have your good old fashioned vampire movie with 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 uh, spiritual and social commentary underneath it was was a rarity then. I think it was an excellent movie in general, yeah. but just it came out at the perfect time to be something very unique. It totally did. It totally did. And the beautiful thing about it is that it transcends so many genres because at its core, it's like the movie Shaun of the Dead where it's really a romantic story. It's really a story about, you know, um, this, um, this, this young kid who is in love with this girl, but he's so distracted by everything else in his life that he ends up losing her mm-hmm. to get her, you know, and then has to see, go out, go to the highest extremes to get her back. You know, that's one of the storylines in it. And it's right. a beautiful story. And you cannot get better casting in that film. I mean, Roddy McDowell as Peter Vincent is so spot on. He's so warm, so perfect. It's like, you know, and then the special effects. It was amazing. I loved I, I even have a soft spot for the second one, you know. That wasn't bad. I thought I thought that wasn't bad at all. The 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 remake, um, I think I think they they may have been trying too hard. I thought it was a, a there, there's, there's so many times I look at a remake and I'll say that was a great movie. It was not that movie, but it was, it was still a fun movie. A lot of the remakes now I look at and I go, okay, that's great if you don't know the original. Yeah, exactly. And you know, too many films have to stand on the original coattails. And if, like, to me, one of the greatest remakes of all time is John Carpenter's The Thing. I'm also a huge Carpenter fan. Yep. But The Thing, if you watch, you know, the um, the original, and then you watch Carpenter's remake, it's, it's the same idea, but it is completely different films. It's it's completely. the same title and location. Other than that, it is, yeah. it is two very different thought processes. But that's how you do a remake. You yeah. make it your own. And then it's like, oh... Now I can watch all these. I think nowadays, I think I think we got like a lot of remakes really quickly that were just shot for shot remakes. And it, 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 there's a reason that people don't know that Sean Bean played the Hitcher, you know, in, yeah. in the remake. Because, I mean, it's literally a shot for shot. And all they did was reverse some of the roles in it. And it just doesn't work. It didn't. And also, I love Sean Bean, but he was no Rucker Hauer. Mm-hmm. You know? That's so correct. Yeah, I know. Uh, I I completely agree with you on on so many levels with remakes. Uh, I saw Pet Cemetery and I saw several others. I saw Pet Cemetery on a plane. Uh, and uh, do I still have you? Yeah. Oh, there you go. Oh, I saw a dead spot there. Um, uh, a dead spot. It's very funny. I just realized what I said. Uh, but I, again, if I if I watch the movie, it's a fun movie. No, it is not the original. But it was yeah. a fun movie. So say so, yeah, you're right. And then, and they condemned the Psycho remake because. Literally, it was the same script, same camera angle, same yeah, everything. Yeah, that one, that one. Uh, yeah, it wasn't like a remake. Um. <laughs> you don't, you don't remake Alfred Hitchcock, but that's no, that's just how it goes. Um, like I also really enjoyed Child's Play that they remade this year, and I'm a big Child's Play fan. But like they did their own thing with it, and yeah. I think the film got a lot of unnecessary slack. And well, sorry, flack, um, because they kept the doll somewhat resembling him. You know, mm-hmm. the original Chucky. Yeah. But they, it was such a fun movie. I had so much fun watching that movie. And Mark Hamill, I mean, you can't really beat Mark Hamill. Oh, yeah. You know? 
I haven't seen that remake yet, and it's funny. You're, everyone I've spoken to enjoyed it a great deal. So, okay, that, that has to be on my watch list now. Yeah, it's definitely, you know what? Just go in and just have fun with it. If you're going in expecting Child's Play, you know, the original, you're gonna you're gonna pull too many things, you're gonna poke too many holes, and you're gonna say, Oh well I wish they did this. It's you just gotta go into it like okay, they're just doing this thing and they updated it in a way that just works. And the kid, and the child actor in it is phenomenal. All the cast. It's really good. Oh, that's very good to know. You you it, it's funny you bring up a very good point because with the thing, because the the, the alien creature in the original, that's what America thought was so terrifying it, it, it was the whole parable of, of the, the, the alien coming to us, the, uh, we got a cold war feeling, we got the whole works uh, the alien in, uh, in John Carpenter's version, that's again what we thought was coming from outer space to us so, yeah. so you're right, it's, it's, you have to look at the era for which you make the movie now, exactly, now big question and, and since, you're, you, since you're a gore guy, then, then you're a perfect person to ask this a lot of people, and we recently had this now with the controversy of the hunt uh, being being postponed because uh, groups, including the president of the United States, said it, it 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 gave the wrong message. It was too violent, etc. How do you feel about violence in these movies? Now, now, yeah, they're, 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 it's their foundation in some cases. It's the reason for them. But but do, when does it go too far, or does it go too far? For me, personally, I think blaming violence in movies and television is a scapegoat. It's the same thing with, you know, music and stuff like that. Oh, I'm so um, good. And yes. to me, it's, you know, you know, they people complained a lot about the hunt and all that. Meanwhile, they had, meanwhile, where were they when The Purge 1 through 4 came out? You know uh-huh. what I mean? Like, like which is the, the exact same plot. I mean, The Hunt's not, is, is not the, an original idea. It's Battle Royale, it's, you know, Hunger Games, it's, we've seen that movie. It's, it's the most dangerous game movie. from 1924. Exactly. The reason that that film got picked, probably, was just because it just became, you know, it was the hot topic. Meanwhile, they didn't say anything about another violent film that came out called Ready or Not, which was about a woman who gets married and into this rich family that plays a game of hide-and-seek, and their whole game is to brutally murder her. But uh-huh. nothing was said about that, and that got pissed. It was also a very great movie. But, like, if you... My thing is, if you're going to attack films, if you're going to attack cinema, you're going to attack video games, you know, then you got to attack them all. You can't just pick which films fit your argument. You know what I'm saying? Like at the risk of this becoming, at the risk of this becoming Bill Maher's real time, uh, you think it's a political agenda? You think you think okay, they're cutting off a head here, but that's okay. That's a Democrat. We don't care. Uh, Yeah, and you know, like people can, you know, people gonna think what they want, but at at the end of the day, you know, nobody's no one's again, no one's complaining about Rambo anymore. Right. But like Rambo, it's hunting people and murdering everybody. And, you know, it's a release. If you've ever been to a horror convention, it's always. And the people at horror conventions and the actors and the actresses and everything, they are the sweetest human beings over on the planet. We watch the most glorious 
Step Step, Devil Free Jacks, you know, um, uh, Serbian film, like all these crazy messed up films. And yet these people are the sweetest human beings I've oh, ever yeah. met in my life. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know. That goes back to the good old days. I the 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 very first actor I ever met of of the genre was Peter Cushing, and oh, so and I there he know. is. He's he's like a demon uh, when you look at him as Doctor Frankenstein, and he's ruthless as Ben Helsing and everything else. But but when I met him, he was the he's the sweetest most re- he was the sweetest most religious man. He was he was absolutely a delight. Uh, so so yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, so so that brings me to to. To the thing that people yell at me for, I think that the horror is. I think the gore, the fright, all of that is cathartic. That we're a better society because okay, we're going to go into a movie theater and watch someone's head cut off, so we don't go into a mall and try to do the same thing ourselves. Yes, a hundred percent. I cannot agree with you more. I completely agree. Excellent. Like, it is. You know, it's a release. It's a release of tension. It's the same thing with video games. You know, it's. started off with the Atari game, um, and, you know, I was there through Mortal Kombat and all the through Doom and Wolfenstein and through all tons of video games and all the, you know, all the gory graphic violence and, you know, I remember games where, like, you know, chop bodies up and all this stuff, <laughs> and, like, you get out your aggression, you play a video game, instead of going out and doing something horrible, you sit at home and you literally sit on to these, you know, video Characters that you sit, you know, watching Fly Jason Voorhees kill, you know, brutally murder people, or Michael Myers, or anybody else. And at the end, you have a common sense. And I also feel that, like, I feel like a lot of people that don't watch horror films, that avoid them, avoid violent films, tend to have more of um, anger in them. You know what I mean? They have no release, they have no place to put it. Yeah. Thank you. I'm so happy to hear that, like, a professional feels the same way. I thought I was a lunatic. No, uh, no, you're definitely not. Uh, and I'm, it's, it's, it's refreshing for me to hear this. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, when we look at history, uh, the ways of execution, the reasons for execution, the reasons for torture and interrogation were, were, were worse than anything that, that anyone can provide on screen. And I always thought that's because... They had no place to put it. So if there was an anger, they're going to take it out in the most sadistic way. Uh, it, it, nowadays, yes, we have these moments where we can go in there. Okay, yes, the movies are frightening. Yes, they're gory. Okay, fine. But you step out of it and you say, okay, I'm done now. Uh, uh, for most people, yes. Of course, there's, there's, there, there are those in the world, but, but potato chips can set them off also. So, uh, yeah, it's, and this is the other thing, too, is that if you really, really some of the greatest horror films, some of the most terrifying, and grab, well, I wouldn't say graphic, but, like, you look at Psycho, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, uh, Silence of the Lambs, Bumpy Bill, all those, all based on true stories. Yeah. One human being named Ed Gein, and... That's right. Oh, you're so smart. That's right. So, like, when people say, oh, it's the hunt, it's this, it's that, you should look at what the films are based on. Maybe you should look at the reality of Leatherface, the reality of Hannibal Lecter, the reality of all these characters that have instilled fears and become like household names are all based on a real 
it's it's because you know you can't make up the the horror atrocities that that go on in your life. There's nothing worse. The there there was a, a, a theater of horror before there were films. The the there was the uh, the the Grand Guignol in France in. Uh, the late 1800s into the early part of the 1900s through, I think, 1962. And within that time period, it is said that that was the favorite entertainment of Joseph Goebbels. So so one, one needs to imagine, just like you said about Ed Gaines and all of that, let's look at the reality. Let's look at, let's, let's read the newspaper for the real gory horror and, and save the movies for our fun time. Exactly. Do you think we've arrived? Uh, uh, the Shape of Water won an Academy Award. Get Out won an Academy Award. Uh, I, I, even even the even the, the the dark parts of it. The fact that at one point Rod Serling had to make everything ghosts and robots so that people would ignore it. Today, the hunt uh, up to the president is telling us not to do it. Do you think horror movies have finally arrived? We're no longer that that silly thing that kids like. That it's it's a, a respected genre, if you will. Horror is always, always looked down upon, you know. I, I've heard people compare it, you know, to, like, is the garbage genre. And it's been something that I've always, always fought against. Because horror, you know, honestly, horror is the one genre that encompasses everything. A good horror film has comedy. It's got scares. It's got action. It's got drama. It's got suspense. It's got all the... It's got all the food groups. And... <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use that. That's great. Please, by all means. Um, and when Get Out, which I thought was a masterpiece, yeah. um, won, and Shape of Water, it was such a huge... It was such a huge step forward because the only other horror film, if I'm remembering this correctly, that the last horror film to win an award was Silence of the Lambs. And Silence of the Lambs is a film that when you go into the horror section, it's not there. Right. They put it under drama or they put it under thriller because they don't like saying it's a horror. Right. They didn't like – they had to call Get Out a comedy script, which to me is insulting, especially with the subject matter of that film. It's not funny. Um, yeah, no, it's really not. And to say, oh, yeah, this is a comedy because Jordan Peele is a, you know, came from a comedy background, to me, is the biggest slap in the face. But I think horror is on the rise. I do. I, you know, you look at some of these horror films that are coming out, and they're just raking in cash. They're just eating up the box office. It Chapter 2 just broke records. Same thing with the first one. Yep. Um, there's so many horror films that are just getting out there. A Quiet Place, Hereditary, um, you know, Ready or Not didn't too, do too well, but it was phenomenal. And I think people are, it's no longer what it was looked like in the 80s. Like if you wore a Friday 13th t-shirt back then, you're, you know, oh God, it's that weirdo kid. Exactly. Now, exactly. Now, 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 now they're celebrating. Now they're brought out. Now they're everywhere. I mean, the biggest television show on TV is Walking Dead, a zombie film, yep. which back in the 90s, if you said zombie, you got laughed at. Oh, of you course. said vampire, you got laughed at. And yet, one of the biggest films, I'm not a fan of them at all, but like the Twilight series, you know, Man. monsters, creatures, all this stuff, they, they bring people in. And once people start accepting it more and more, I, I honestly feel like we're, we are close to having it, uh, 
another year where a horror film takes takes it all, and I cannot wait for that. I would jump up and down. It's funny you talk about Twilight because, firstly, vampires don't sparkle. That's all there is to it. Um, <laughs> the the second thing, I, I I'm a Hammer film lover, and Hammer films when they first came out with their horror series, Curse of Frankenstein, Horror of Dracula, they were rated X. Uh, they were they were considered mere porn, if you will, and and today they're looked at as high art, and they're looked at as groundbreaking in terms of uh, the use of blood, the use of sexuality, the use of reality uh, yeah. in a film. So, so yeah, uh, it it looks like in in increments, yes, we are we are gaining ground, if you will. Yeah, uh, isn't it funny how John Carpenter's The Thing came out huge bomb, Blade Runner huge bomb um and now both of those films are regarded as two of the greatest in their both respective genres you know it was i was having a conversation the other day about how we kind of got spoiled in the 80s um you know and the 70s we got spoiled with these great amazing brilliant films that you, you look back on like like back then. I remember loving RoboCop and being like, "Yeah, you know, it's RoboCop, whatever." You know, I'll watch it or Predator. Or, you know, it's Predator, it's on, whatever. Now I watch those films and I'm like, "Oh my god, these are masterpieces." These are way ahead of their time. They were way ahead, ahead of their, their time. time, and they just keep getting better with age. John Carpenter's They Live. Every year it goes by, it becomes more and more of unfortunately reality. But like, you yeah. know, it just becomes so much more. Of an incredible masterpiece, and back then people were like, yeah, I guess it's okay, it's cool, you know, Roddy Piper, okay. They all say know, it is what it is. It's it's oh, it's exactly. one of those films, yeah. You know, but now these films are regarded as so much more, and that to me speaks levels. I, you know, I laugh because historically Shakespeare was not a very popular writer in his day. Uh, really? Oh yes. It, it, well, that's why there's the whole Shakespeare conspiracy and whatever because. Ben Johnson and Christopher Marlowe were regarded much higher as playwrights. And and Shakespeare, because he was also a producer and whatever, they also looked at him as a bit of a hack. And and and, and so nowadays, well, uh, I, I don't think he is. But uh, so I, I'm, I'm hoping you're completely right and that our hypothesis is correct. And slowly but surely, okay, hate it today, but let it be the next Rembrandt tomorrow. Exactly. And that's kind of what happens a lot of times, you know, a lot of these old films. And that's, I think Hollywood's kind of jumped on that bandwagon. That's the reason why we're now getting, you know, another Ghostbusters, we're getting another Bill and Ted, which I'm stuck for. Yeah. Um, you know, we're getting Saw 9, we're getting the, the revamp of Halloween, which, you know, minus a couple of little things, I thought was absolutely amazing. Um, and plus, I'd give anything to see Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode again. So, you know, <laughs> Keep them, you know, they're they're shooting two of them back to back. Jamie Lee Curtis, just just throw them at me. I don't even care. Like, um, but like you really, you know, like, like a lot of these film filmmakers back in the day struggled. Um, and George Romero once said, um, and this is this is something I kind of live by. He goes, I don't want to make movies so that I can live in Hollywood. I don't want to make deals so that I can make movies. I want to make movies. Period. And there's something about that that rings true in his work, is that his films, all of them, they, they just feel like stories that he wanted to tell, stories that he wanted to, you know, like um, creatures he wanted to make, fears he wanted to instill in people when you look at creatures.
creep show when you look at, I mean, even Bruiser or um, Martin or any of his works, um, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, even, you know, Land and Diary, he's wanting to, he says so much in so little, and it's so beautiful, and that's definitely something that, like, I think is the reason that people can still pull, you know, Night of the Living Dead out from a completely different world at this point, you know, and be able to introduce it to younger generations, and they still love it. Completely. Well, it's the message, the fact that they're they're watching a movie not because they want to scare you, but they want to scare you into believing something or realizing something. That that scare is part of an equation, not the not the whole thing itself. Exactly. You know, it's um. You know, another great quote was from Wes Craven: um, "Horror films don't create fear; they release it." You know, <laughs> which rings really true with half of his work in terms of Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> Completely, he was the nicest of men. He was he was such a quiet man. It's so funny that he created Freddy Krueger. Oh yeah, and and also directed like. Have eyes and like last house oh, on the left. Gosh, yes. Oh, last house on the left. Oh my God, that's right. That was his. Oh yeah. my gosh. It's uh, Boris Karloff uh, hated the term horror movie. He he really? thought he thought it was too it was too harsh a word. He he looked at them as fables. He looked at them as cautionary tales. So he he was he was once quoted in an interview that he had with Robert Block of all people, and he he said, "I never set out to horrify anyone." So for him, it's it's all about uh, uh, getting this message across, making people walk out of there and saying, and now I understand something in this world because of, of that creature, which is no different than the Greek tragedies. If you look at the Greek yeah. tragedies, they're just really excellent CGI horror movies uh, with, with the Medusa and the, and, and, and the Cyclops and other such creatures. So we're, we're really yeah. going back to the great parables. Well, that's also funny that you bring up Greek tragedies because um, that's what what we're doing with Janus. Janus is all takes place with uh, Greek mythology. Um, the episode we just filmed, we filmed the Grey Sisters, which are you know the, the three sisters right. that are related to Medusa, and they right. share one eye. So we did a, a version of them for this. That, that's what the cave was for. Um, you know, <laughs> cave in really- your backyard. I think that's great. <laughs> Oh yeah, I missed the game. We we had we had we had to take it down. It kind of collapsed in on it on itself after a while. But um, I would I know. would imagine after such a point. But <laughs> we wanted to keep it up through uh, through Halloween because um, I mean, come on, like what better way than to have a Halloween party in a kind of cave, cave but, in your backyard? Oh, that's exactly. great! Exactly. Oh, it was great. <sighs> but you know, maybe maybe we'll build it back someday. <laughs> well, when you do, let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll bring, I'll bring the pumpkin pie. Um, <laughs> You're definitely invited. <laughs> thank you, Marcus. This was wonderful. May, may your canon of films join these great artists' canon of films, and may the messages and the lessons you give us, uh, we, we take deeply and understand every, every scream, every shock, every stab as being something that 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 teaches us a very valuable lesson and allows us to. Uh, to be cathartic on our own feelings. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for, for the, this. This has been a great interview. I've been having a blast with it. I, I, I keep going, but after a point, our audience is going to say, okay, we got it. Uh, <laughs> you like horror, we get it. Okay, great. You, you both love horror. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for this. Please send me links, trailers, everything like that. I want to spread the word about your good work. 
I want to make sure people know um, uh, know what's out there with your name on it. I definitely will. Um, The last call right now is in festivals, and um, we have a slew of screenings coming up. Um, The ones that are in the New York area are going to be – it's going to be at um, the Upstate New York Horror Film Festival um, from the 11th to the 13th. Mm-hmm. It's going to be at um, both the Horror in Staten Island. Um, really? We're, yep. When in Staten um, Island? Yep. When? Um, oh, wait. Okay. I'm trying to think of where it is in Staten Island. I'm not. I can send that to you. Send um, me everything. I'm 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 in Staten Island these days, so so oh, I would love perfect. to get out there. Well, we're going to be doing a Terry Alexander from Day of the Dead and I are going to be doing a panel on the 18th. I'll make sure to send you the invite and everything. Gorgeous, um, gorgeous. Come on down. I know? would love to. I would absolutely love to. This awesome. is terrific. Thank you so much. I look forward to meeting you. I look forward to all the trailers and links and films and everything like that. And I wish you the best. And I will definitely speak to you soon. Definitely. Thank you so much once again. My pleasure. Ciao. Ciao. In the Passion Pit also welcomes a new sponsor to the program, DLW Photography. That stands for Dan Lane Williams Photography, that is. Dan Lane is a brilliant photographer with years of experience as a photographer and as an actor. Why is that important? Because he understands what you want in photos. Headshots, press shots, archive shots. His acumen and understanding turns out compelling imagery sure to get that gig or that listing and make a dream come true. And he also photographs life events as well. So get him to do your headshot, then the press shot for the show it gets you, and then your wedding, since the producer will fall in love with you. Visit www.dlwphotographynyc, one big word, dot com, and tell them Jay sent you. And now let's hear from celebrated filmmaker Jeremiah Kipp. Hey, how's it going? Very well. How are you? I'm doing great. Jeremiah Kipp, if I'm on the line, then you're on the air. Oh, fantastic. I, all, all filmmakers are ready to go the moment I said that. So, so you've joined the elite group. Um, uh, good to finally speak to you. I, I was I was going through. Uh, I was looking you up, and I was very impressed with what I found most recently. Slapface, uh, a, a short horror film you're making, is making the rounds and and quite exemplary in its reviews. Uh, yeah. Why don't we? Uh, why don't you tell uh, our listeners uh, who Jeremiah Kipp is? Great name for a horror movie director, and uh, and 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 about your your work. Sure. Well, I've um, been a freelance director for, gosh, since uh, two thousand five, two thousand and six. My uh, first feature was called The Sadist. That was a killer in the woods movie starring Tom Savini. Uh, I've done oh, uh, four other features since then. Uh, and then um, in between, like, a bunch of uh, short films, including um, including Slapface, which is a monster movie uh, that we shot two years ago. And that was a passion project, really. That was one about a, a little kid who um, his life was incredibly tough and tremulous. He's like uh, his his mother has passed away and his dad is little nuts. And uh, and he discovers this local legend, this creature living in the woods that 
that was a feature-length script that I was trying to get made for many years, and uh, the director of photography, Dominic Civilli, suggested that we go out and make it. We did a little bit of crowdfunding, and we got all the money together, and then we went out and made the film. And it was uh, something that I really loved. I loved making it. It felt personal. Uh, it was one of those movies that you make, and you wonder if anybody else will go for it. You know, but oh, they certainly did. Yeah, when we screened it at the festivals, it was really good because a lot of audiences connected with the kid. A lot of people who love horror movies when they were kids, like, would have, you know, had a pretty big imagination, loved the idea of there being, you know, monster or something. Uh, so a lot of people connected with it on that level. And uh, you sort of took the riff of the monster under the bed, but turned it into. Uh uh, turned it into something in the forest. You, we we get a, right. a Maurice Sendak feeling out of out of, yeah. out of that. Uh, yeah, that's a good comparison because I love Maurice Sendak. I think Maurice Sendak is great, and I think where the wild things are is more adult than people think. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So it was, you know, certainly uh, if where the wild things are was rated R, you know, <laughs> darker. sort of like, um, and I, I, it's demeaning to say it this way, but I just, it, the short film is sort of like a, an audition process because you're saying you did a short, you did the short film of Slapface and now you're going into the, the full feature. Do you think it's sort of like, yeah. as it tours the festivals, it's sort of like your audition piece, if you will, your showcase? Uh, you know, at the time I wasn't sure if it was like an audition piece or not. I, I, you know, when I made the short, I said, you know, I never, I, I don't know if this feature is ever getting made. I just want to make something about this story. You know, and if it if it winds up being a really great business card for the feature, that's fantastic. But at the very least, I can tell the story that I think that means something to me. Uh, and if audiences like it, that's great. And if we get good reviews, that's great. And if it plays in festivals, that's great. So, you know, I wasn't thinking as far ahead as um, will it launch the feature-length version. But, uh, but I was fortunate, you know, it's like people responded to it and, having the short film enabled us to put it in front of producers, you know, it's like, uh, we, we were ready when the producers asked to see it, you know, we had the feature length script, we had the short and we had the, you know, I don't know what they call it nowadays, a pitch deck or the lookbook, whatever they're calling it, where it's a bunch of images and a synopsis, all that kind of stuff for, for people who hate reading 90 pages, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, so, but we were ready for them when they came calling and the short was indeed a big part of that. That's great. Uh, now, now I've always been of uh, of the mind that that horror films are more than horror films. They're 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 cautionary tales, and they're also parables. Now, in reading this, uh, uh, dad and son have uh, have this game that they play. Hence, the title of the film. Uh, yeah. Uh, what's what's the underlying? What what is the audience taking away 
now that it's running and so you've actually had actual audience saying it as opposed to just hypotheses, what, what are they taking away from the message within this of the kid befriending the monster, of, of dad and the kid having this really abusive game that they both enjoy playing? Uh, oh, yeah. What's, what's – and, and, and mom is gone and, boy, you're not a happy guy. Uh, what's, uh, what, what's, what's the message? What, what are they taking away from Slapface? Well, I think the, the the interesting thing about watching the movie unfold for an audience is that you're setting it up as a monster movie where the creature, you know, could be an element of danger. But then when the kid is home, you know, and is confronted by this very real danger of playing this slap-based game with his father, you know, which is far more violent than, you know, than anything that happens with the monster, you know, it's like that certainly plays the levels of... Uh, of what is monstrous behavior. Because, you know, when I was a kid, I always looked at monster movies as being very comforting, you know. I, you oh, know, you I too, remember, huh? Oh, I feel so much better. Good. Yeah. I, well, I grew up with a very open-minded... Uh, I grew up with my grandparents. My grandfather also, he grew up in the Depression era and had a pretty tough childhood. But he would oh. go see Frankenstein and the Wolfman and Dracula and King Kong, and it would make him feel way less alone, you know, and... Uh, oh, that's so uh, interesting. And then I, yeah, and I think I think even like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's like such a horrifying movie. It definitely, when I saw, it, I saw it as a kid, and it's probably not the best movie to watch as a kid. <laughs> but I loved it. I mean, I really did. I thought it was like Chainsaw and Gretel. I thought it was the same story, you know. But like, there was an amazing scene that I never forgot, which is Leatherface kills off another one of the people that knocks on the door of the house, and then he sits by the window and is kind of freaking out. He's like, "What are all these people doing coming here?" I remember having this weird feeling of sympathy for the monster, you know. It's like, oh, man, Leatherface has some tough. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. Now, now, as long as we're getting into the fact that here's this little kid dabbing his, his moist eyes at the plight of Leatherface, um, uh, how did... Why was it comforting to you? What? Uh, yes, uh, you mentioned about your, your grandfather's plight with, uh, with the Depression, and I completely understand that. From my own family, but but what is it? What is it that makes you comforted about that? What what does horror do to you that makes you feel good, if you will? Well, you always you know it's like I think reality is far stranger than fiction, you know. And when 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 you when you have horror movies or fairy tales, it's like reality plus it's something beyond, you know. And like the minute you have something beyond, it opens up the possibilities of the imagination. It's kind of like oh, you know. Wouldn't it be great if monsters existed, you know? Uh, um, and so, you know, it's like when, when you get into the elements of the fantastic, it means that there's something beyond our cold, hard reality. You know, like if a monster could come in and save us, that would be really, really great. <laughs> uh, you know, but like I think, you know, but human relationships are really complicated. Like the little kid loves his father. The little kid loves his dad, even though his dad is doing the systematic violence to the kid. You know, and that's the complexity of, of humanity is like, you know, a lot of the time love takes on a really twisted form, you know. And uh, and it's like real, if love in real life can be that twisted and strange, then why wouldn't you love a monster, you know? Like, why wouldn't you love some, some creature in all of its imperfections? You, you bring up something very interesting, which, uh, which I saw firsthand when, uh, when The Shape of Water won the Academy Award. It's, it's uh, you know, he, the kid loves his father, but his father's being abusive to him. But to him, it's his father. It's someone he, he loves. And, right. and, 
you know, we look at the monster and say, okay, this is a monster, but to this kid, to you, to me, to so many others, it's it's pleasing. You know, you you don't want the the lovely creature with 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 with, with a glow and white, peaceful and everything. No, we want we want Frankenstein to come and and, and help us out. Uh, yeah, I I think that's really fascinating. Where where do you I think agree. that comes from in us? Where where do you think do you think you're sort of giving like the the ultimate parable of 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 acceptance, if you will? You think? Yeah, I think we have pity for our monstrous behavior. You know, it's like when you look at like the old, old fashioned monsters like Frankenstein and the Wolfman. It's like they don't want to be monsters. You know, like they want you know monster wants to be loved, you know, and, and he shows it in these fucked up ways where it's like, you know, he winds up throwing the kid in the water because they're throwing the flowers in the water and he doesn't realize that this was like a horrific accident. Uh, and the wolf man, you know, it's like the guy is struggling with this monster that's inside of him that comes out when he doesn't want it to, you know, so... You know, when we're when when we're looking at the monsters and feel sympathy for them, it's because I think it's like really great to afford sympathy for our monstrous sides. You know, like when we've experienced rage or panicky terror in our lives, or or have run away from something we love out of fear. You know, it's like I think those things should be pitied. You know, not condemned. Do you think we think of ourselves as the monster? Because let's face it, we all root. You know, yes, we're we're all screaming for Luke Skywalker, but we all love it when Darth Vader walks on on screen. Do do yeah, we think of ourselves that way? Yeah, maybe. You know, there's part of us that is that. You know, like certainly, uh, in every single one of us, we've exhibited behavior at some point in our lives that we haven't felt necessarily proud of. You know, and then Darth Vader is a great character because, uh, you know, like. You know, he walks on and he seems like the all-encompassing power of evil, you know, but the things get more complicated in Empire Strikes Back. Exactly. even more complicated in Return of the Jedi. And that's why he's the best character in Star Wars is because, you know, it's like, yeah, he's such a badass, tough, lethal, dangerous killer. But, you know, underneath all that, as with all of us, there is a vulnerability, you know, and there is a... Maybe there's a desire to aspire to something more than that, you know. Or, you know, and also, like, you know, when we're at our worst, it's like we feel like everything is so far against us that all we want to do is erupt in violence, you know. Right. And even that, desert, you know, and that's horrifying. But that also is like, you know, like when, when movies do that well, it's like shocking because we've all felt that at some point. You know, we've all felt this, you know, these urges to destroy uh, even if it's self-destructive, even if it's destroying somebody that we care about, you know, we've all felt that way at some point in our lives. And I think that's like, you know, we might not look at some of that behavior and say, that's great, you know, boy, I'm right. sure to admire that. But like, we can at least identify and say like, yeah, you know, I, I, I understand that. I understand how the, the, the villain could feel that way. Do you think horror movies are cathartic? Because we talk of school shootings and we talk of, of horrific acts in 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 reality, do you think uh, uh, watching watching the monster do it is because you said you, you you felt such peace? Do do you think it stops aggressive thinking in us to see to see the parable of it on screen? It's cathartic, you know, like when we see extremely violent acts in movies, but it feels earned, truthful. You know, then we can you know then we can say like yeah, like I've had I I. 
I feel purged of those feelings, you know? There you go. Uh, yeah, so, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 74, extremely violent movie, you know? And then you watch it, and it is terrifying, and it's also exhilarating, you know? And it's also insane, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, so we, and, and I think that's identifiable, too, because as Norman Bates says, we all go a little mad sometimes. Exactly. What's what's your mission in terms of, of movies? We're talking about Slapface, but you have a whole canon of, of, of fine macabre movies that you've yeah. done. Do you have a mission when you when you make a movie? Do you say, okay, it needs to have the following, or or do you just you, you, you get on the roller coaster that is creating a movie? What's what's what what do you do at the start of a film? Usually, what I'm attracted to in, in horror is uh, like the the kind of dread that you see right out of the corner of your eye and you don't necessarily want to face it, but it's there. Let's not pretend it doesn't exist. So when I've done genre films, I mean, that's like the thing that I move towards, you know, it's like, let's, uh, let's examine that ugly side that we, you know, that we'd rather not look at because it's there. Let's not pretend it's not, you know, and then, uh, and then treating it with as much honesty as I can, you know, because uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I think we walk through our lives terribly afraid, and uh, and it's worth examining why we might feel that way, or why we, we might feel like an outsider, uh, or why, or what is the thing in aberrant behavior that we could connect with and and and, and feel connected to, and to relate back to in our lives. You know, now not every single film that I've done, you know, has been. Has been like really fun, really fun horror movies. <laughs> even then, you know, even then, you kind of want to look at the characters and say, "Well, what is the thing I identify with in that person? Like, what is the thing that gets me to care about those people that we're going to be killing off?" And uh, uh, it's worth considering. So, so you look at the reality of it. You're not, you're not, you, you don't go off into a fantastical realm necessarily. There has to be, there has to be a real story underneath it. For, yeah, but for me, the fantastic is so hardwired in with our feelings. Like, if you think about, like, love and hate and fear and envy, I mean, those are, like, really big emotions. Mm, and, like, the best way, I think, to represent those things in movies is through metaphor and monsters and horror and science fiction and stuff like that. It's always taking, like, the things that are, like, really primal to us and, like, putting them out there into into movie land. Like, I love The Fly, Cronenberg's movie is great, you know, and he said uh, if you made a movie about somebody dying of cancer, it would be impossible to deal with, but watching a guy turn into a giant fly, it creates a device that allows us to feel all the feelings, and that movie is heartbreaking. I mean, you watch that movie, I mean, I cry at the ending of that movie every time because it's so moving. This big, giant, disgusting fly that just wants to be destroyed by the end of the film, you know, it's like, oh, God, you just feel so gutted by it because you love Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis so much. Oh, and sure. You, and you root for the relationship. And when, and when he's decaying and turning into the fly, you know, it, it's not absurd. It's like, it's full of feeling. Uh, so, you know, I don't, you know, when I look at the fantastical, I think it's a, a, a that as an extension of how we feel all the time. You know? it's like, yeah, really. I think it's a much more accurate way of describing our loves and our hates is to show um, to show horror uh, or to show sci-fi, you know, it's like it takes it beyond. 
but it, but it's like that's the thing. It's like it's uh, it allows us to enjoy those things. Also, you know, when you ride a roller coaster, you are like kind of experiencing death without death. You know, it's like oh, let me <laughs> let me experience let me experience what it feels like to be to to be out of control. You know, and then when you watch some of these genre films, you're like, oh man, I'm so out of control safely in a movie theater. You know, or in a, or on, on Netflix. You know? Yeah, really. Uh, you can scream and cry in your living room very easily. Wow. Yeah, exactly. It's like you're you're, you're in the safety of your living room. You're going to be fine after you watch that movie. Uh, so uh, you know, and I I think that it's there's a, there's a real excitement and a real value in that. That's so interesting. I never I never I never looked at. Okay, we're exper- we we get to experience death for a little while, and then and then we get up and we wash the dishes and we go back to life. Uh, yeah, really you know, interestingly put. Yeah. Yeah, um, like when you read Clive Barker or see those movies, it's demented. I mean, the stuff that happens in some of Clive Barker's work is like the most insane. Thing, oh, you know? uh, but then you know, then you put the book down or you stop watching the movie, and it's kind of like, wow, I was transported into Alice in Wonderland. It's the same thing. You know, I was transported into a realm where anything was possible, and now I can come back to my life and. Uh, and have, having had experts those feelings, I, mean, I think that Clive Barker is an underappreciated genius. Yes, he most certainly is. He had a short story, I can't remember the name of it, but it was all of a sudden everyone's hands had their life of their own, and 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 they they would get themselves cut off from people's bodies just to mobilize and, and, and basically take over a, a, a city, that all, all our hands just basically took over a city. And, and, oh yeah! And when you realize the the parable underneath that about about what our hands can do, and and it's it was it was so chilling to read that. I, I I'm 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 more of a viewer than a reader, but when when I read certain works, it's like it's just it sticks in my brain for, for forever for that reason for that kind of parable. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, you never forget it. What's uh, what was the first horror film? What was the first one you made? The first one I made. My gosh, I was twelve. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta, we got a camcorder, and I meet, like, you know, my grandparents were like, oh, we'll use this film, like, family picnics and weddings. And I was like, all right, great. We're going to do a monster movie in the basement. And uh, granddad, you're going to be the bad scientist. You're going to do the dimension that comes back and you're out of your mind. And, uh, yeah, mom, you're a reporter. And da, 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 and we're going to, and there's a machine gun. You know, so that was the very first one. Uh, uh, okay, what was the second uh, one, then, after that one? Uh, you know, so, um... Let me think now. I, I remember, you know, oh my gosh, the next horror film that I made. I don't know, it starts to turn into all blur because, like, there were so many movies, like, all around. Uh, I remember in uh, 2006, I made a short film called The Pod, which was about, like, a, a drug that drives people out of their minds. Uh, Larry Fessenden, who's a great New York horror filmmaker, was in it as the, as the dealer. Uh, and that one kind of started my festival life on the horror film circuit. Um, although I did a film a couple of years before that in 2003 about a little kid who was dropped off at a holiday Christmas party run by Christians who are the kind that want everybody else to be Christian too. Oh, great. And uh, some horror film festivals played that also, you know, because they made connections between like the, the religious uh, people like pushing their ideas on the kid and the invasion of the body snatchers, you know. It was like kind of a frightening film, and it kind of played really well for the horror audience. You know, even though it's naturalistic and 
you know, nobody gets killed and, uh, you know, it still had this terror. But there's still the, know, the terror and the chills, uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so those are a couple that happened before my first feature that were, like, that appealed to the horror audience that played at the horror film festivals and were really kind of exciting. Um, and then, um, I mean, I'm going out of order because I've made so many short films that they become almost a blur. But uh, I remember in 2013, we did, uh, whatever it was, I, I made a short film called Baggage with a horror personality called Rob Dimension. And that was kind of like a macabre version of Alfred Hitchcock Presents that winds up having a more perverse ending than Alfred Hitchcock could have done in the <laughs> 60s. And uh, Painkiller, uh, written by Jerry Janda, who also wrote Black Wake, the film that, that sold that I was talking about before. Painkiller, also about a drug that, uh, that um, is supposed to be a cure for pain, but it winds up like addicting the, the person who's on the drug to pain. So like they need it's, it don't, it's almost like Fight Club, where it's like they just want to get punched in the face as hard as possible in order to feel good. Uh, the horror audiences definitely loved that one. That one definitely helped. You know, that was like another successful short film run that led to Black Wake getting made, which is an H.P. Lovecraft monster movie uh, written by the painkiller guy, Jerry. Um, and that one... You know, Jerry was sitting on a beach one day trying to imagine a project for us, and he just imagined, hey, what would happen if a giant H.P. Lovecraft monster emerged from the water? And what if it were made of wriggling parasites that would infect people and create brain-dead zombies that would, whose heads would explode, you know, or whatever. And I'm like... <laughs> oh, is that all? Right. So, so, I'm like, so it's like none of the creeps meets Cthulhu. Is that what's going on? You know, uh, so we went out and made that, and that one... You know, it was a weird, certainly a weird movie to make, but, uh, you know, I mean, we were making it, and I was like, what the, the hell are we doing here? This, this this movie is out of its mind, you know, and it's like, I don't know if it's going to work for anybody, but then, you know, Rube Morg and Film Threat, some other critics reviewed it, and were like, this Gonzo Entertainment throws everything in the kitchen sink into the story. And I'm like, all right, I guess they liked it. So, you know, uh, off we ran, it got distribution. Um, had a pretty good uh, cast of uh, of those sort of C-list movie icons like Tom Sizemore and Eric Roberts and Vincent Pastore. So oh, very cool. A bunch, of the, a bunch of those guys were in the movie. Sizemore was great. I really loved working with him. Do you, let, let's, let's talk the business end for a minute because I'm hearing you talk about festivals and things like that. Um, sure. How is it uh, – uh, once the movie's made, there it is. There's your movie. Um What's what does it take to get it into the festival? What do you have to do? Is it costly? Is it miserable? The, the people use the expression "soul crushing" all the time, which I think is which I think is a little horrific as an expression. But nonetheless, uh, um, do you, uh, how is it? How's the business? How's the business end? I, love it. I don't know. You know, it's, I don't. I've never found show business. To, I mean, I guess show business is soul crushing if you allow it to be. But mm -hmm. I think the whole thing is like we're being paid to play make-believe, it's ridiculous what we do, and that we're allowed to go make these things is amazing to me. Oh, so, I, and then the you. festival thing, I don't find it soul-crushing at all. It's like, you know, you make these things, you know, like you make these short films, and then you come up with a strategy for how you want to share them with the world for like a year or two. You know, and then it's like, a sh you know, a short film to me is really a way to get yourself out there put it in front of audiences. If they like it, that's wonderful. 
and does it help you get your next project going? So, you know, like the, the films that I've done that have been successful, it's like, you know, they go out and they do a two or three year festival run and they lead to another job, you know, uh, and the ones that are unsuccessful, it's like, you know, it's like you did your best and you at least you have there. another some thing in your channel. Right. You know, it's, yeah. So some, some go and some don't, you know, and if one of them doesn't go, then go make another one. You know, it's like, and it's out of your control. You know, it's like what audiences you're going to respond to is, you know, it's like you just do the best you can. You make the thing to the best of your ability and then you share it with people. And if the festival programmers pick it up, that's wonderful. And if they don't, then it's like, well, I'll go and make another one. Right. You know, and it's like, you know, and, and if you look at it that way, your soul can't be crushed because you're, because you're, because you're out there making things, which I think is a great gift. And I think it's wonderful to go out and express yourself creatively. Oh, uh, it's, it's, it's and often, it's, and often that leads to other, you know, work begets work. So it's like something that you do catches on. Somebody else will see it and say, hey, Jeremiah, I want to hire you to go do my thing. And then I go, and, you know, if I like that thing, then I will go do that. It's it's funny you say about about the the fact we we go out and we're able to to create. We've all had day jobs, and and as as sure. a as a writer myself, I've had so many different day jobs. I I do publicity and anything else that's writing, if you will, writing articles. And and there's so many times I'll get a manager who'll say, "We don't speak like that." And yeah. and the moment I hear that, I'm like, "Okay, so this is, we don't, but I do. So I need to go elsewhere." So so you're right. The fact that we can take our creativity in our hand and go someplace is 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 quite amazing, and we should be lucky to do it. Uh, do you yeah. have a, now, you've been around since since 2006, so I'm not sure if that's a long enough time to ask this question, but have you have you ever had a film that when it first opened, everyone's like, eh, it's not so great, and then something happens in the world, something happens out there, and suddenly they all want to know about it again. You're able to re-release it, if you will, and it gets extra popularity. Well, you know, I mean, it's these things kind of all take on a life of their own, right? Oh, you know, sure. It's like some of the, some of them, I don't know, you know, it's weird because, like, I remember, I remember we made Painkiller and I was like, man, nobody's going to go for this. This is just too weird. But then, you know, we put it in front of audiences and everybody went for it, you know? Like, everybody, you know, the horror audience all would come back and talk about how much they enjoyed it. You know, and then, but I, you know, I released another one around the same time, and I was like, this is the one that's going to take off. And, you know, I played at three film festivals, and nobody saw it, you know? So you just never know. You never know. You know, it's like, it's not up to you anymore when you finish the thing. It's like up to the audience. It doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to them. So if they like it or don't like it, you know, it's like it kind of has nothing to do with you anymore. You did your thing, you know, which was to go out and make it. You know, and I am surprised, you know, I am surprised when um, when somebody likes something or when they don't, you know, it's kind of like, oh, that that's interesting that that was the one that caught on. You know, Gary Oldman used to, you know, like people would walk up to him and say, I love you and such and such. And if he didn't like it, he'd be like, really? That one? Why? <laughs> you know? And then, but then he was like, you know what? It's like... Uh, I should just say thank you every time. Yeah, you know, anytime that anybody likes anything like that, I should just say thank you. Yeah, you know? and uh, and if they didn't like it, you know, it's like you know, as long as I have the satisfaction of knowing that I cared about it and like went out and did the best I could with it, then that's enough for me. Yeah, I mean, rejection sucks and it hurts and all that kind of stuff, but but you got to be okay with it because you know it's like that's that's you know that's not. 
you know, it's just it's just part of the fabric of like making stuff. And of course. you make something, you know, and you put it out there into the world, like you run the risk of rejection. Like if you're casting a movie and you're trying to attract name talent, rejection is part of that too. You're going to get passed on of by actors who will pass on a role, and like. And it's for all sorts of different reasons. It doesn't necessarily mean that your project sucks. You know, it just means they passed. It could right. mean that they were doing something else. I mean, it could mean that they read it and were like, uh, wrong fit for me. You know, like uh, for Slapface, for the dad, like, you know, there were, you know, uh, the actor that we got for the dad is great. You know, the first guy that we offered it to had just broken his leg. And he was like, I can't, I have a bad knee. You know, I'm like, well, you're not walking right. He's like, I look good, I can't show up second guy was like look i love my children and i can't see myself slapping a kid and i'm like all right third guy had no problem <laughs> oh, he's, like, yeah. he's like i love the kid that's why i'm hitting him i'm like yeah there you go mm-hmm. uh so you know you just can't take it personally when you know when anybody passes or rejects your project for it's, it's for any number of reasons and you know a lot of it it's not necessarily because you're bad you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein got rejected. Yeah, and, and that's a immortal classic. Of course. Um, you know, so you just gotta you just gotta go with the flow of these things and kind of accept you know, accept the process and, and just follow the river, you know, enjoy the journey because if you keep making stuff, then it gives back, you know, like you you know, you, you find your way with the with the material and you find you find what audiences connect with and you follow that. That is an amazing philosophy. If if everyone had that, what a, what a happy place the entertainment industry would be. Yeah, I mean, I know that I know the entertainment industry can break people's hearts and really hurt and sting and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know. I've always fundamentally loved show business. I've, I've always enjoyed it. I've been doing it for a while, and I've always gotten a kick out of the weirdness of it. I've always gotten a kick out of the fact that. The highs are very high and the lows are very low, but it's incredibly unpredictable and the wheel of fortune is always turning, you know? And it's like, yeah, you you know, like things might go bust and then and then you turn around and you're like having a great success. People talk about the light at the end of the tunnel, but I don't know if there is a light or a tunnel. I think it's just that things, you know, it's like things change really quickly in, in, in show business and, uh, uh, and you just gotta accept it and say, like, okay, that's how it goes. That's um, great. Let's let's see, let's see what's next. That's great. That's show business is a horror movie in and of itself. It is, you know. And if, but if you love horror movies, then you kind of say, like, all right, I accept it in all of its weirdness. You know, I accept I accept it in all of its peculiarities. And there are a lot of peculiar people in show business. I swear to God. Oh duh. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's where we all go. Uh, yeah. All of us that have a somewhere a teacher saying, "Oh, that's a strange kid," and we're okay. We're going to show business. That's that. Yeah, I mean, come on, you know, it's like I think that's where we all live. Oh, that's great, Jeremiah. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. You have you, you made my day because it's it's such a pleasure oh, to hear you. somebody say how wonderful it is that they're doing what they love to do and they're creative and whatever and 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 when you get kicked that's okay you then get back up and you do it again and it's all really great it's that's uh, what rocky said uh, thank you uh it's it's a pleasure to speak to someone so optimistic who puts monsters in the woods and and gets kids slapped and all things like that um thank you so much i'm going to make sure our listeners know how they can uh how they can find you on the web how they can find your movies 
and and just get to see the great work that you do. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It was such a pleasure. Thanks. I'll talk to you soon. Ciao. Take care. November moves us from one mood to another, with a classical theater program chatting with Alexander Carney and Michael Hagens. Then we visit with one of Cabaret's definitive names, Sue Matsuki. And finally, in honor of Thanksgiving, we meet Sky Walters, an actor, singer, and DJ whose story will stay with you always. Bit of trivia. Who played Dracula on Broadway? Yes, Bela Lugosi did it for sure. But who did it in the 70s? (laughs) Here's a bit of music from that film. Till next time, I'm Jay Michaels, and happy Halloween.